You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. And um, this week we are talking um, about another assistant U.S. attorney. Um, We spoke briefly about the case a few weeks ago when we reviewed the missing Center County DA Ray Grecar, specifically how some of the circumstances surrounding his disappearance were similar to another case. So let's plunge into another crazy twisted case. Um, And this one involves assistant U.S. attorney Jonathan Luna. On December 4th, 2003, at 5.30 in the morning, an employee of Sensenig and Weaver Well Drilling in Denver, PA, arrived at work for his normal shift. As he walked through the gravel parking lot to clock in, he noticed a red light. But not just one red light, there were two coming from a tree line on the far back side of the property behind the building. As he started to make his way towards the red light, he noticed an outline of a vehicle and the front end appeared to be hanging off an embankment that led to a small creek below. Something was definitely wrong. Could someone have been hurt? He immediately called 911. However, he never could have guessed the mystery behind those taillights. Police arrived on the scene around 5.45 a.m., and found a silver Honda Accord still running with the front wheels hanging over the creek bank. It didn't appear to have any damage like it was in an accident, assuming that they thought maybe the vehicle lost control and stopped there or was a drunk driver. As a trooper walked closer, he noticed what appeared to be blood smears on the driver's side door and on the left front fender. He peered into the vehicle to find a large pool of blood on the right rear, which would be the passenger rear floor. Oddly enough, there was money scattered throughout the vehicle, 20s, 10s, and a few 1s, and a cell phone sitting in plain sight. But where was the driver? The trooper worked his way to the front of the vehicle, and as he leaned over to check underneath, he found an African-American man wearing a business suit and a black coat lying face down in the stream. He appeared to be somewhat crouched below the overhanging vehicle as if he was either hiding from something or maybe afraid that the vehicle was going to fall on him. The trooper could tell he was deceased, so he called the coroner to the scene and ran the license plate. The Maryland license plate came back to Jonathan Paul Luna. When the coroner arrived, they found Jonathan was still wearing his court-issued ID on a lanyard around his neck and appeared that he had been stabbed. Quick question. So when we're saying that this employee at the well drilling company saw two lights, were they moving or was it just the car was just in that position and it was stationary and he just saw the lights on it was stationary they saw the lights it was the car was still running so like you know when you have your lights on and everything you see like the taillights okay i don't know why in my brain i was imagining that moving and then the rest didn't make sense but okay yeah i think the idea was that he thought that maybe someone was drunk or like drove through and stopped because of the creek there or a tree and maybe something was wrong or another employee had maybe had a medical emergency and went into the tree line. Right. So who exactly is Jonathan Luna? Jonathan grew up in South Bronx of New York City, close to Yankee Stadium. His father was Filipino and his mother was African-American. He completed his undergrad at Fordham University and attended law school at the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he was roommates with Reggie Sulford. And for those who don't know, he was the executive director of the ACLU of PA. Jonathan worked at Arnold and Porter 
reporter in D.C. before he moved to work for the Federal Trade Commission from 94 to 97. He served as a prosecutor in Brooklyn prior to taking the job in Baltimore, where he became the assistant U.S. attorney. He married Angela Hopkins, who was an obstetrician, and they had two beautiful children together. Now, I don't know about you, but I wanted to know a little bit more about his job because I don't know much about what a U.S. district attorney does. And what I found is that there's a lot of them and that they work in the criminal division, generally handling like really large caseloads. However, as most federal prosecutions end in plea bargains, they typically only try two to six cases annually. So why was Jonathan found in Podunk, Pennsylvania? His body was transported to Lancaster County Coroner's Office for an autopsy. What was released to the public says that he was found face down in the creek on PA Route 897 in Brecknock Township, and he was found at 6.45 in the morning and pronounced dead at 8.05. I'm not quite sure why there's this big difference. I'm assuming because it took so long for them to get there and pronounce it. Doesn't a coroner officially have to be the one to pronounce it? Like, police on the scene can't make the pronouncement, it has to be the coroner? Or is that not the case? That's what I assumed. Um, That's why I assumed there would be that so Chunk we, like as an EMT, if we get to a scene and we find someone obviously dead, we would call medical command and then they give them a detail of like what we found. And then they would basically say, yep, go ahead. And we would tell the county and they would give us a time of like time of death. Interesting. So I'm not sure. I would assume like, I don't know. I don't know why the state police didn't report it or maybe because they don't have that medical like oversight Could that be. there wasn't right it's just it's weird there's like that's a huge gap so the primary cause of death is listed as freshwater drowning slash multiple stab wounds but it wasn't just two or three stab wounds which is kind of what you would think when you say multiple he was actually stabbed 36 times and the wounds were around his chest and neck, and also there was a traumatic injury to the right side of his head. But get this, he was stabbed with his own penknife. Oh, yeah, you had mentioned that before, I remember, when we were talking about Ray Greekar. That's crazy. Yeah. And horrible. Usually it seems like overkill to stab someone 36 times. But maybe you need to stab them that many times if it's with a pen knife. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that actually, I, I was concerned, like, what exactly that is. And total side note, but my husband got me that Hana Killer Box subscription when it first came out. And there was an actual pen inside of it. And one of the evidence things was when you twist it, there's a knife in it. So to me, when I think of a pen knife, I think of like this big pen that you twist open and there's a knife inside. Um, however, it's described more as like a pocket knife kind of thing. I mean, the pen knife is kind of cool, but it sounds like it's more of a pocket knife. Like a, just a small blade that you would use for kind of like everyday things. Yeah, I just don't know why they call it like, like homicide. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they would call it a pen knife and not just like they were killed with a pocket knife. It shows how much we know about <laughs> knives. I'm sure someone out there is like, oh, my God, you idiots. 
<laughs> so the pen knife wasn't actually found until later in the day when the um, Pennsylvania State Police had over 100 cadets come and search the area since it had started to snow, and they were afraid that they would lose evidence. Police also headed to Jonathan's office to see what they could find there, which is in Baltimore. So authorities searched his office and spoke to his coworkers. On his desk, they found a cell phone and his glasses, which he supposedly needed to drive. Now, I did a few report, find a few reports that the glasses were found in a parking garage and not in his vehicle. So keep that in mind as we continue on. I also wonder about the second cell phone. I mean, yeah, I was wondering about that too. I was like, didn't they find one in his? Yeah, car? and according to like the actual police report that I found online, it says that the cell phone there was one in his car and in his his um office. I mean, I wonder if it's just a, you know, personal phone and work phone. I know a lot of, yeah. especially people involved in the legal world will have, you know, one phone to access them for legal purposes and one to access them for personal use. Yeah, I was thinking the same. And it makes sense. I'm just curious, like, which one was in the car? Was it the, yeah. the business one or the personal one? And why take one and not the other? If you're used yeah. to having both of them. Well, when was this? 2003. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe he just didn't. Use, maybe the work one was the one in his office and he really didn't use it outside of work hours. But just I don't know, because 2003, I don't think cell phones were like totally glued to you like mm -mm. they are now. No, no, you still had to push like Maybe. the numbers to text or at least I did in high school. So T9. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like four times just to get that one yeah. letter. Yeah, it was a nightmare. What a struggle over now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um a defense attorney in the office said that he spoke to Jonathan earlier that night and he was supposed to fax over some documents but they never arrived, which was totally unlike him. So investigators were able to piece together the chain of events leading up to the death of Jonathan. So as I review the timeline as listed, I made a map to kind of connect the dots because, you know, I'm extra and I wanted to make sure to link. Uh, I'll make sure I link the map to the website so it's easier to understand looking at it. So around 9 p.m., Jonathan left a voicemail for a coworker that he was working all day on this major drug case. Mm. And was taking it home to continue working on it there. Now, the next time Jonathan was seen was when he left the office in Baltimore Courthouse around 11.38 p.m., which is marked with a red star on the map. Um, remember, he left his glasses behind that he needed to drive and his other cell phone. He drove northeast on I-95, and his Easy Pass registered him on I-95 into Delaware. After his car hit three turnpike toll interchanges, Jonathan started getting paper tickets instead of using his Easy Pass. And ironically, we were just in Ocean City um, last month, and we took I-95 to Delaware, so I kind of made a note when we were talking about these interchanges and tolls. It's basically a two- to three-lane highway that reads your Easy Pass. It's not an actual booth unless you go and get a ticket. You keep moving, like, 50, 65 miles an hour. So I highly doubt that they would capture any images, especially at night. I wonder, though, looking back at 2003, I know the automation of everything has really, especially since, you know, March of 2020, everything around us for the turnpike is 
toll by plate. I wonder, though, if in 2003, when he was making this trip, maybe it was maybe there were actual, you know, booths that you had to stop in. Um, and just maybe it's changed over the past, you know, 18 years. That's a good point. Regardless, he had to go through the interchange, but it would make sense that it wasn't exactly the same that long ago. So the, I automatically was like, oh, what if his uh, easy pass died? But I know that you never know when it goes out. I had um, friends who were going on vacation and they didn't know there was um, their thing because they have batteries or they have something in them. Really? They do? <laughs> yes, they absolutely do. And oh. um, there's, I mean, maybe it changed, but I remember being blown away. We were friends in like 2016 and I remember her telling me they went on vacation and their easy pass like st had stopped working um, because it was so old and they got so many fees from it. Um, and then they had to like, yeah, it was, I never knew that. I, that's news. Yeah. That's definitely. Yeah, I didn't know well, that. I wonder if that was an older way, but that could definitely apply to this case then. Right. Yeah. And I don't think until just a handful of years ago, you could keep going at full speed and it would read your easy pass. I think for a long time, you really had to slow down and the let it. The um, technology now is crazy. Register. I started working part time for a company and their drivers are not the best about their easy passes. And they constantly are getting like fees and fines and tickets and all this other stuff, even though they have easy passes because they're not like behaving. And um, it's so crazy how clear of an image they get of everything like nowadays. But yeah, oh, it's wow. ridiculous. And even like I had one going to college in 2005. And I know when I did the easy pass, you just slowed down. There wasn't somebody in the booth. So even if it wasn't like the express lane where you're still staying at the same rate, there usually wasn't someone in that lane. It's just interesting that he would go from using his easy pass to getting paper tickets. Like that's more contact with somebody. And it, it feels sketchy. Yeah. And it, it gets a little bit more sketchy as we go on. So I wanted to verify instead of looking like a dumbass, um, there are batteries in front of the easy passes. I mean, inside of the easy passes, you can change, you can change them yourself, but you will not know when they, um, are dying it doesn't like beep or anything or tell you why don't they tell you i i swear like when i got my easy pass like shouldn't it be like hey it's probably in the fine print this. that you don't read it was probably. when i talked to my friends they said they had had it for years and didn't even know that it had batteries until it like happened so i i think a long time and i, I don't know yeah like, i've had mine for a long time but it did just work <laughs> I'm wondering if we'll even have them because now like with COVID and everything, they just read your license plate. And like, I didn't have my easy pass and I took the turnpike to Philly and they just charged my easy pass because my license was on the pass. So I'm wondering if it'll go to that because it'll save them money in the long run. They won't have to have the little thing. But it's such a paper trail. I mean, I don't, I don't know. The Like I said, the company I'm working from, I, I want to say they get like 50 letters a week. Jesus. Wow. From Easy Pass. Oh my God. Yeah. 
It's rough. Okay, so he gets on. He's on this easy pass, um, and then he starts to get the tickets. About an hour and a half after that, at 12.57, he withdrew $200 in cash from his bank account at an ATM at the JFK Service Plaza, in um, which is near Newark, Delaware. This is the first yellow marker on the little map that I made. Um, and if you click on it, it'll give you directions to like the route he took. Jonathan got back on the New Jersey Turnpike at Route 130 outside of Trenton at 2.37 a.m. and then crossed the Delaware River Toll Bridge to the Pennsylvania Turnpike just 10 minutes later. Authorities questioned where he was between the ATM at 12.57 and entering the Turnpike two hours later. This should have only taken him 45 minutes. However, it took him an hour and 40 minutes. So where was Jonathan during this time? Okay. So where was Jonathan during this time? If you click on the third tab on the map, it'll show you the next set of directions. And you'll see it's only two and a half miles from where he entered the New Jersey turnpike to the toll bridge. Yet it was 10 minutes in between. So I don't know why like you would get on and then the toll bridge is right there. Why would it take you 10 minutes to drive two and a half miles? Where the heck was he? Another thing that grabs my attention is the fact that he drove past Philadelphia to the Delaware Toll Bridge. Why not stay on I-76 onto the Shirkill Highway through Philly? It's the middle of the night and you're definitely not going to have traffic and people aren't going to see you. So like if you're trying to avoid traffic and people, why are you using the turnpike and why are you going from your easy pass to tickets? I don't know. 76 sucks. There's no guarantee there's not traffic in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, I went to school at Temple and holy shit, sometimes night is worse than day because they will do road work That's at true. night. I've come back 76 from Philly at 2 a.m. and there's traffic. I'm like, what? what is happening? <laughs> but still, if you're in... um, If you're in Delaware and we know he wound up in Lancaster why why would you swing east through jersey and come in over philly instead of i mean lancaster county touches uh maryland so why not just whoop up you know go west if you're heading to lancaster it's sketchy that you need to go through well it's sketchy that you need to go through jersey ever but it's sketchy that you need to go through jersey at two o'clock in the morning just to circle around Philly just to wind up in Lancaster anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But to be fair, like Ben takes great pains to not drive through Philly because he hates it so much. So I'm, it's a thing. <laughs> well, but if you drove straight to Lancaster, you wouldn't be near Philly. Oh, I see what you're if saying. If he went from okay. where he was at the JFK Service Plaza in Delaware, you could just go northwest instead of northeast. Gotcha. Okay. And go I toward Lancaster rather than going toward Trenton. And some people think hmm. that he might have been headed, he or they, as we get into it, that he might have been going to New York City instead and then kind of ah. stepped off. But like, if he was going to Philly, for something, let's say drugs or sex or something like that, then why would you go back to Jersey to get back on the highway? Like that wouldn't make any sense. 
So his debit card was used to purchase gas at a Sunoco at the King of Prussia service plaza, which about an hour later. And apparently security cameras didn't catch a very good picture of him. At 4.04 a.m., his vehicle exited the turnpike at the Reading-Lancaster interchange, and when the toll ticket was handed over, the person working noticed that it had blood on it, which makes investigators believe that it indicated that Jonathan may have been injured at the time he left the turnpike. Around 5 a.m., the workers started arriving at the well drilling company, and by 5.30, someone noticed the vehicle at the stream. Um... Something else that really caught my attention, and you'll see on the map, because to me, like, the map really kind of lays out things a lot easier. Um, the exit off of the turnpike in reference to the location of the crime scene, there is no quick access to it. If you zoom in on the map, you'll see that the exit on the right kind of loops over the turnpike to the toll plaza. And from there, you would assume that you would, like, go straight. Because, like, when you get off of the turnpike... Usually straight ahead of you is like the exit ramps, like you go east or west or wherever. Um, but if you went straight, you would get on Route 220 and you would have to go a good five miles in either direction before you could get back off of it. So it doesn't make sense, um, but it would appear that whoever, like if it was him or someone else driving, that you would have to know the area and... I just, it feels like super sketchy to me. Like you, first of all, why are you in the back of a well drilling company? And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Sarah, you're like looking at it. I'm I'm staring at the map and zooming in. Um, Do you see what I mean? Like there's no like easy access to get there. And one site right. I read said that it's only eight tenths of a mile from an emergency access gate. Um, but they're pretty like, oh. so I'm, we're from, I'm familiar with them because our fire department covers part of the turnpike and it used to be just like a regular key to get in and it's not really monitored. Now they have key cards that tells you like to get in, but why would he have, like, he doesn't, he's not from Pennsylvania. So why would he have a key card or a key? There had to be like some significance right. to there to me, like right. I'm mm -hmm. I'm curious how many of the roads that cross 222 are exits from 222, um, or if they're just roads that go under. It's um, looking at it, it looks like most of them are just roads that are going under 222. So you'd really have to go. Yeah, it's five miles out and around. I looked. It's five miles in each direction. I'm like, okay, like he got on there and then he got off at like that 897, which is where it's at. But the road, there's no exit ramp there. You couldn't get off. So I don't, it actually is an overpass. So I don't, That's so weird. it's super weird, super weird of how he ended up there. So there's a lot of theories about the case, just like, um, in, uh, Ray Gregar's case, there's two main ones in which way his death was ruled a suicide or a homicide. So let's get into that. Um, the first is being suicide, which I know sounds completely insane, but hear me out because this is kind of a theory that, um, the FBI has. 
and they're really leaning towards it being a suicide and for multiple reasons. It appeared that he left his office alone and that there was no evidence, at least that they felt, that showed that he was with anyone else at the time. It appears that Jonathan left the office alone and there was no evidence, at least that they felt, that showed that he was with anyone else when he left the courthouse. Several of the wounds were shallow and thought to be, quote, hesitation wounds, which we'll get into. And third, apparently Jonathan was in debt, like a lot of debt, like 16 credit cards worth of debt, one in which his wife was not familiar with. And he apparently was on a dating website, which may have something to do with his money trouble. How do you get that many damn credit cards if you're like struggling with the debt? Like, I don't get it. I don't either. But... On the flip side of that, so nothing clearly states that he was in that much debt. It was just one article and that that's like the FBI's kind of thing, whether it be gambling, dating, porn sites, or just daily expenses. I think we need to keep in mind too that like according to um, my BFF Wikipedia, as of 2020, the starting salary for an assistant U.S. attorney was 55000 which was adjusted to your cost of living. And his wife was an OB. So you have law school, you have medical school, you have two kids, you're living in a big city that's not cheap. I personally don't want to say, hey, like he was something into su- something super shady when like they probably had a lot of debt from all of the other stuff. Does that make sense? Like it's, yeah. you know, you're trying to put do right for your family and your kids, but you have these huge loans. It's weird that like dating and porn sites are mentioned because if you're going into debt for dating and or porn sites, I'm you should probably talk to someone. I mean, I'm not trying to pass judgment here, but like talk to somebody. Right. right. And like, we'll get more into that a little bit later on. It gets a little bit crazier. So that being said, Jonathan prosecuted a man who robbed a bank. And after the robber was sentenced, around $36,000 of evidence money went missing. When it was investigated, they found that Jonathan had mysteriously come into $10,000 around the same time. And he was supposed to be administered a polygraph test, but he was found dead just prior to the scheduled date. Sketch. And the fourth reason, which piggybacking off the $36,000 that was missing, he was stabbed 36 times. So I have a question. I just, how, when you're robbing a bank, how did they make away with 36000 I just don't understand. Like, they don't keep that much in their tills. I don't know. I'm lucky, I guess. I, I don't know. Multiple this tellers. This was almost 20 years ago, too, though. So there may have been more in the vault. That's true. Possibly. I mean, I don't, you probably know more than me, but... I don't know. Maybe. I feel like bank robbery has been going on for decades. Yeah. I don't know. I feel, I don't know. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366.
mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases, along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook wherever you get your podcasts. So the FBI believed that Jonathan may have fabricated the kidnapping slash attack and took it too far by accidentally nicking an artery, a crucial vein, and killing himself. So part of that, that's part of like the suicide theory, I kind of see as maybe he conspired with some other people to steal the evidence money and maybe they killed him to cover it up. And sorry if I'm like jumping too far ahead, but that's like, I see that more as someone else trying to cover up a secret than him killing himself. But that's just me. Yeah, it definitely, I can definitely get behind that. I mean, 36 times, I think is a lot to stab yourself. (laughs) I would think so, but I've never, you know, yeah wanted to stab myself God, (laughs) with a I mean use a better knife dear lord something and I might be getting ahead here a little bit as well but if there's 36 stab wounds and we're looking at excuse me we're looking at um this idea that when he handed that last ticket over there was blood on it I wonder if maybe there was an attempt previously didn't go well but he was bleeding right because you said a lot of them were pretty shallow and then maybe that's kind of when he finished the job it also just seems crazy to me that you're that intent on hurting yourself but only to a surface level but that many times like i mean i know a lot of people that have gone through a lot of mental health difficulties that have either cut or attempted suicide one way, shape or form, but never anything that was 36 times, 36 slash marks or it's, I get the correlation with the dollar amount. I think that's interesting, but it doesn't scream self-inflicted to me. This sounds like a really like shitty math problem. Yes. Like if he was stabbed 36 times and he left the PA turnpike at <laughs> 7.35. Oh, just wait. It gets a little bit Sorry. crazier. Um, the corner at the time stood firm. Like this is homicide. I'm not changing it. It's homicide. And even the FBI approached him and asked to change it to suicide. 
Not only did he refuse to change it, but the two successive coroners also reviewed the case and the autopsy report and 100% believe that it is homicide, and they also refused to change it. If the FBI is so intent on this high up in the legal system out of Baltimore, which is very close to D.C. and a very important city, and they are so intent that they're going against three coroner's words that it's homicide, it seems like it's not suicide. Amanda's face is like, uh-huh, I'm mm-hmm. saying. It's super sketch. And, like, the pressure to change it was so bad from the FBI that the coroner even wrote a letter offering to convene a coroner's inquest, which is basically, like, f- means the federal agents would present their testimony of why they thought that he committed suicide in an open court, and they would have, like, this hearing, and both parties would talk about the facts, and then the court would decide homicide or suicide. But the FBI never responded. So they never did Convenient. Yeah. So Hmm. here's why it's theorized that it's a homicide. So obviously 36 times and then he drowned. Like you're stabbed that many times and then you drown. And remember the pool of blood in the rear of the vehicle? Like why? If he's bleeding, he's in the back seat driving. Right. With his glasses that he left at work (laughs) that he can't see. Um, The blood on the outside of the door and the fender might indicate that he stumbled towards the front of the car prior to falling or jumping into the creek to either hide or get away. And the blood found on the toll ticket is kind of an indication that he's bleeding or someone had his blood on him prior to getting off of the turnpike. He also wasn't known to follow through or to not follow through on paperwork. So it was super odd for him not to fax that paperwork over. And I watched an interview on ABC 27 News. Um, There was an author, Bill Kessling, and he wrote a book titled The Midnight Ride of Jonathan Luna. And he said they, meaning the FBI, want us to believe that Jonathan traveled across four states driving from the backseat of his car without glasses, all while stabbing himself repeatedly. Well, when you put it like (laughs) that. Yeah. So I want to know, what do you guys think? What do you think so far? Do you think, are you team homicide or team suicide? I just think back to when you first mentioned this during the Ray Greekar case about him being stabbed with this pen knife. And I think the same thing I did then, like who the hell would commit suicide by tiny knife? It's just, I don't know. I would, I definitely don't think it would be a suicide. Drowning is like a pretty miserable way to go. And that's one of the least likely ways, uh, percentages that people kill themselves. I feel like your body subconsciously like will move you. Like even if you pass out, like your body will, I don't know. I feel like, no, it was, I feel like it was not a suicide. I feel like agreed. If it was a suicide, just to play devil's advocate, it would have to almost just be accidental and therefore not be considered a suicide because if it's accidental, then it's not intentionally killing yourself. So like, I could see this idea of, you know, maybe he was trying to make it look like one thing and accidentally like nicked the wrong thing. Um, I don't know if you go more into this later on 
in the case, do we know, like, did he actually drown? Was there water in the lungs? Yes. Okay. Um, she nodded. Sorry, you guys. I said yes. Can't see a nod. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. <sighs> I mean, he was stabbed 36 times. So to back that up about the drowning, you know, he could have passed out in the creek at that point. Like right. he was hiding from somebody or he was trying to like get away or get help or and he just didn't realize he nicked himself that hard if we're going with suicide or he jumped in trying to run. How many, if we even know this, of those 36 wounds were fatal or deep enough to potentially be fatal? Because I know you said a bunch of them were more superficial. We'll get into that shortly. Okay. <laughs> Did you mention where the stab wounds were on his body or is that something else that we'll get to? Yeah, eventually? so like what I said so far is what was released to the public by the coroner's office and okay. like reports and stuff. So the next section is what was observed by family and friends and um all the information that was kind of found over the years, a lot of it was found by the author of that book that I referenced. And some of the information pertains to the state of his body and other clues about like his route of travel. So gotcha. okay. in a press conference released in February 12th, 2004, it hinted that Jonathan might have quote, had contact with someone on his midnight ride. However, no other information has ever been released. Other information found, not at the press conference, was a second blood type and a partial fingerprint were found in the vehicle, as well as some grainy footage at the Sunoco where he stopped for gas. Yet again, nothing else was ever discussed about either of these clues. I feel like, though, he has two kids. He's married. I'm sure his wife and children have been in the car. And how many times does a kid nick themselves and bleed that, you know, like there could be blood in his car from that. Or I know I've said this a thousand times, but like I get nosebleeds all the time. I guarantee you there's probably a spot of my blood somewhere in my husband's truck. I mean, I know it's kind of far-fetched, but again, just playing devil's advocate. No, that I mean, is it possible that it's just someone in his family? I mean, kids hurt themselves constantly. I'm 31 and I hurt myself all the time. Like, oh, I'm fair. so clumsy. Didn't we have one episode where for some reason we both noticed we were like our legs, a spot on our leg was like bleeding? Was that you, Sarah? <laughs> yes. Like, why am yes. I bleeding? <laughs> like, it yeah. happens. I went downstairs and Brendan looked at me and said, why is your leg bleeding? And I said, my leg's not bleeding. And I looked down and there was a foot long drop of blood that had gone down my shin and said, oh, my leg is bleeding. So, I mean, case in point. It yeah. happens. Yeah. So, <laughs> according to Jonathan's friend, at the funeral, Jonathan had gloves on his hands to cover wounds. Apparently, his hands were really cut up and his lips were really swollen as if he was punched in the face multiple times. His friend said, quote, there was this really horrible Washington Post article that came out in December of 2005 where they say that he, meaning Jonathan, was trying to gain sympathy and he was just pricking himself and accidentally nicked an artery. However, the coroner said that the knife went all the way through his neck and almost came out the other side. 
Oh, God. And it was actually bigger than what the friend could see at the funeral, since obviously they tried to cover it up with makeup and keeping his collar pretty high. So does that sound like someone just hesitating or pricking themselves? So the thing about, like, him looking like he was really swollen from a fight, when you die, like, afterwards, even with, like, all the stuff that they, like, I guess process you with, there's just so much bloating of the body, like, before they can even, like, it happens, like, pretty immediately. Like, it's ridiculous. My mom, I, I couldn't believe it. Like it, it almost, not to sound gross, but it was, like, the skin was so tight, it looked like it was about to, like, burst. And, like, it wasn't that long after she had passed that they had got her there to, like, start, like, I guess processing her. And it was just awful. She was, like, it looked like when we showed up to the hospital the day that you know, she died. It looked like someone had strangled her. She had all these awful, um, awful marks on her that looked like bruising and it was terrible. But when you had mentioned the cuts on his hands, it makes me think of like, def um, like defensive wounds. Or if he was stabbing himself, all the blood, his hand was slipping and catching the end of the blades. So it's like, which one mm, could it right. be? So his friend's claims were backed up in November of 2006 when the undertaker who prepped Jonathan's body for burial vividly described his injuries. She said that his stab wounds were on his back, which immediately throws a red flag for me. How do you claim it's suicide with stab wounds on your back? Like I'm sitting here with a pencil trying to figure out how exactly you do that. And it doesn't seem very logical. One was slightly below the middle of his back and off to one side, and there was some in the middle of his back slightly below his shoulder blades and also around the shoulder blades. His hands were, quote, shredded. They had been cut savagely trying to fend off an attacker, and he had long, deep cuts between his fingers and to the Ugh. front and back of each hand. I hate that's the worst for me somehow. Right? It's like it's like the worst paper cut ever. Oh, God. The deep cuts were like slicing razor wounds to his hands, peeling away the skin around his fingers, and some places cutting down to the bone. She felt that they were indicative of someone having slashed at Jonathan repeatedly in a downward motion with a knife. And they were clearly defensive wounds. His neck had been slashed open from the right side all the way around his throat. Oh my god. So, like, <laughs> sorry, when you say all the way around his throat, meaning multiple slash wounds or one slash wound that went from one side to the other? I take it as one slash wound, like, okay. like they cut his throat. So I'm going to reference my, sh my favorite show, Cold Justice, because I'm literally obsessed. But there was an episode of this guy who supposedly committed suicide, but... For him to have actually pulled the trigger, he would have to hold the gun upside down at a 40-degree angle behind his head at the base of his skull, would use his thumb to pull the trigger with his non-dominant hand, and then have the bullet to have the bullet exit upwards. So they demonstrate how you can like contort your body and achieve the angle, because it is possible, but it's way easier to explain the wound and path by the girlfriend walking his walking up with a gun like gangster style, as I like to call it, and shooting him. It just doesn't make sense in the heat of an argument for someone to go through that elaborate scheme to kill himself. So going back to Jonathan's case. Could you wedge a knife into something in the backseat or somewhere and achieve wounds on your back? Probably. Could you have sliced up your own hands? Sure. But none of it makes sense to do that. Like, why would you do that? That's so much pain and effort 
to put into making it look like an attack if you're faking it. The only way I feel like I could wrap my brain around putting yourself in that much pain is some sort of drugs. And I imagine if there was some sort of like high level of drugs in his system that would have been released maybe, or we would know something. Yeah. So about the drug thing, I, um, my brother-in-law had a sister who had struggled and I was really young at the time. And like, I knew about like the drug things like with my mom, but my mom was always like, kind of like a docile druggy, and she'd like pass out or be unconscious. And, uh, we were coming home from my brother-in-law's dad's funeral and she like pulled box cutters out of like her unmentionables and she went to go after my brother-in-law and my brother-in-law is very strong he was in the navy at the time and I've always thought of him as strong and he couldn't even hold her down and she was like maybe a hundred pounds wet and just like it took like three officers and just like she was just going at them and it's like she didn't feel anything it just blew my mind because like I guess I never saw that with my mom but with her it just like it, like she didn't feel anything. She was like, oh, wow. drugs will wow. make you, we call it like stupid strength. Like it will take a lot of people to knock someone down like that. But I don't, I've never seen any of them purposely hurt themselves, especially yeah. 36 times and then slit your own throat. And cutting your hands down to the, bo- like fingers down to the bone is super painful. And n- well, like I did it and the story is really embarrassing. So I'm not going to tell the story, but like it hurts. And I can't imagine just to try to make something look a certain way, cutting my hands down to bone. Because when it happened to me, it was an accident and it hurt like a mother. Like it, I mean, drugs aside, because obviously like drugs or alcohol would impair that nerve sensitivity but i mean if he's you know stone cold sober i don't see how he the pain of it would make him pass out i would think with that many stab wounds and having his hands that shredded and then he drown so right if we go with that theory blood is so slippery so i think there's only like a finite amount of times you would be able to stab yourself if your hands are because hand wounds bleed like quickly and a lot. So there's only so many times you'll probably be able to be even like holding that knife and stabbing yourself. Like, and I mean, like if he held it and was stabbing his back and it was bleeding on his hand and then it was sliding through and cutting his fingers. But like, they're explaining it as like a downward motion. And I don't feel like you would go through that. And I feel like that still doesn't explain why there's so much blood in the backseat of his car. Unless he did it there. Unless he was stabbing himself in the backseat of his car. But that just seemed... Why? I don't... It doesn't... But he was never, bleeding before he got off the turnpike because he handed a bloody ticket to the toll right. person. I never believe when they try to explain some weird angle as suicide like sure it's possible but like i just i don't buy it at all that someone would go to all that trouble i just don't buy it it's a very crafty suicide if it's a suicide yeah, like, why bother 
So after all that information, there were still leaks to the media stating that Jonathan had 100% committed suicide. Like that's what it is. They really called into his character into question. And some believe that his race had a lot to do with it. So some of the biggest accusations were the debt theory. Like I mentioned before, it was said that he had major debt. However, many think that it was just a ploy from the FBI to discredit him. We don't know for certain if he was in debt, but let's look at it a little bit. Could he have owed other people? What if someone came to collect money that he possibly owed? Also, most robbers have an accomplice. I mean, they do in the movies anyway. They could have came to collect the money that he stole from the case. One posting that I read online said how they could have told him to withdraw money during his ride to Pennsylvania, but ATMs have limits. And honestly, like if I think that's kind of silly. If you stole $36,000, you're not putting it in the bank because like obviously that's going to throw a red flag. And I mean, just the $10,000 was enough to alert them that something was wrong. So I'm not sure that an like the ATM really has that much to do with $36,000 anyway. Which leads me to the next theory, which was the paid sex and that dating site. It was thrown out there that he may have taken cash out because he was meeting up with someone for sex and things got out of hand, hence the, um, take that out. Things got out of hand. Remember, there was almost an entire hour where he was basically unaccounted for. Maybe he pissed off a pimp. I mean, it was rumored that he was found on dating sites, but it was never verified to actually be him. And he was a smart, look, good looking guy. His wife is gorgeous. I can't imagine that he would have a dating site with his actual picture on it for one. And it was also reported that he was working on some pornography cases and stumbled upon some porn sites that didn't relate to the case. However, I found a post that challenges this theory saying that this person was a trial attorney and staying up at night and working that diligently on a case that you kind of lose interest in sex. If anything, it would be more of him going to like score drugs in Philly, which leads us to that theory. Um, and according to the same posting and that same person, it's apparently well known that trial attorneys use drugs, specifically uppers. So he could have driven that far away from his area so that no one didn't like no one recognized him to purchase whatever, but then why would you leave your ID tag on your neck? That's a good point. Yeah, that's weird. Like I could get behind it, but not with an ID tag on your neck. So a private investigator spent six months diving deep into his life and finances, and he couldn't find a single thing to link him to any bad behavior. Like, no large money transactions, no porn sites, no dating apps, nothing. Which is completely the opposite of what was being fed to the press. The best man on his wedding day, Danny, said, quote, It's preposterous to think that Luna would have thrown away his career, wife, and two children by taking money or trolling for sex on the internet. Joey grew up in the projects of the South Bronx in the shadow of Yankee Stadium. It was not a picnic growing up, and he worked hard to get ahead in life. He pushed me as his older brother, John, did the same. So there's some other theories that we can touch on, um, all of which go with the premise that he was murdered. So at the time, Jonathan was working on prosecuting two men charged with um, running a violent 
drug ring. And according to the book I mentioned, Jonathan's case was kind of crumbling. He was uncomfortable with the plea deal that he had to draft up, and there was some speculation surrounding the mishandling of an FBI informant. Of course it's someone involved with the FBI that speculation arises from. <laughs> right. So Jonathan's trial involved Dion Smith and Walter Poindexter, who were accused of selling the 911 brand of heroin in Baltimore. Dion ran a small rap music label, which he did his dealings out of, and Walter was facing homicide charges for killing a man for supposedly stealing his stash house. The main witness of all this was Warren Grace, who was a convicted heroin dealer working as a paid FBI informant. Warren had broken the conditions of the confidential informant program by slipping out of his electronic monitoring device thing. So I'm assuming like he was on kind of probation, leaving his house and firing at least one shot in his neighborhood and having heroin unrelated to the case he was informing on in his vehicle. When the information began to come out during the trial, the defense attorney argued that Jonathan had failed to disclose this potentially exculpatory evidence to them, and as required by the Brady Gigolo court precedents. On the third day of trial, the district court judge agreed to allow the defense to examine his conduct in court, and over the lunch break, Jonathan offered a plea bargain to the defense. It was reported that he had a heated argument with the two defense attorneys after the exit of the courtroom over the terms of the deal, which was probably because Walter's attorney wanted the deal to cover the homicide charges because his lawyer said that the murder was clearly drug-related. Jonathan worked late into the night to finish the plea agreements. He had completed Dion's but was still working on Walter's when he was seen leaving the courthouse at 11.38. I'm not going to go into all the details surrounding the trial, but that was kind of the gist of, of it on a quick Google search. So this is similar to Ray's case. He was also working on a case against a large drug ring in Center County, and it was, in fact, like the biggest one in history, according to reports, when he disappeared. So it makes me wonder if Jonathan's murder was actually supposed to have happened closer to Center County as a warning to Ray, but he was bleeding too much, so someone basically dumped him. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't crouching like he was hiding. He was crouching like he was hiding, so maybe he was trying to stand back or stand up after they came back like if he was got out because they thought he was dead but he was hiding and then he passed out into the creek and drowned hmm. i can see that so another theory is a mob hit um there's a theory that his death was a mob hit for a few reasons, the biggest being that the mob likes to send messages, which seem to be loud and clear 36 times. So the theory is based on the article in the Post-Gazette in 1932, without going into all the details of the names and the bosses, because it is so confusing to me. A man was found murdered and tied up like a slain animal. What does this really have to do with Jonathan? Well, he wasn't tied up like a hog. But he did have, the guy had 22 stab wounds to his body, and it's believed that the 2-2 stands for double-crossing someone. So the 36 stab wounds refer to the $36,000 that was missing. I can get behind that. <laughs> right? There's some well-known mobs in Pennsylvania that are actually still active today. And again, quoting yardbooks.com website, which is the book I mentioned, 
quote, in Pennsylvania, the mob and state government go together like, well, beer and sausage. It's also said the Pennsylvania Turnpike is the doorstep of the Pennsylvania mob. I'm going to end with just that. I'll let you look up the information on the mobs in Pennsylvania, if you would like. So after all of that, do you guys think homicide or suicide? Homicide. I'm sticking homicide. For sure. Yeah. So there's one other detail that I left out, and this one kind of sealed the deal for me thinking that it was homicide, because this last little bit of information is kind of shocking. The last detail was that Jonathan's scrotum had been slashed open. Oh my God. But it wasn't a quick cut or a clean cut. It was described as having jagged edges. No, no, I don't even have one Mm -hmm. and that's hurting me. No. So... Could he really have cut his own nutsack? Like, oh. I can't. I could picture literally every man holding themselves right now. I truly, honestly don't think Jonathan or any man would do that to themselves. So I have a couple questions. <laughs> like sometimes they can determine if um, wounds were before or well, I guess it would have to like be before his death, right? Because he drowned. Oh my God, because he died by drowning. Oh my God, this realization is sweeping over me. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Like, do you think there is a possibility that it could have been after he fell into the creek, maybe? And he like on? smashed it open? I don't know. I don't want him to, I don't want to think about this happening while he was still alive. I just don't. <laughs> I don't. You and every man listening. <laughs> I that mean, kind of falling like, and smashing your nutsack doesn't sound like better, but. I really don't uh, think like given that information, like to me, 100% homicide, like that is the determining factor for me. I what if cannot... it was an angry turtle? An angry turtle. I'm just saying. I have a thing for turtles. I don't, I don't do turtles. It's a story for another day. I was bit by one as a kid. I just, I don't do turtles. Right in the nuts. <laughs> yeah. Cause I have one of those. Sorry. Uh, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> it, it is uncomfortable. It is. Um, so here's where things get crazy again with like the FBI. So in August of 2019, a county judge ruled that the coroner's autopsy and toxicology reports are public record. But when the private investigator hired by the family asked the current Lancaster County coroner for the records and papers in the case, they weren't able to produce them. Hmm. According to LNP, always Lancaster newspaper, the coroner, Dr. Stephanie Diamantoni, who had been in office now for the last 12 years, mind you, said that she was told they were given to the FBI. Hmm. So she didn't think there was any reason to believe otherwise. That was until the county found all the records for Jonathan's case sitting right there in the basement of the government building on North Queen Street in Lancaster. No one knew how long the records had been there, and the archives manager stated in the 10 years that he had worked there that no one had ever requested them. But just as quickly as word got out that the records had been located, the newly elected DA, Heather Adams, asked the courts to seal them, which is exactly what happened on February 5th, 2020. 
In the filing, it said, quote, public access could hinder the investigation. The investigation would be fundamentally impaired in the suspects of the investigation, and ultimately, the perpetrator would be alerted to the details known by the investigative team through the autopsy report. I feel like they're trying to bluff that they have actual suspects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's super sketch. There's so much <laughs> yeah. about this that is not sitting well with me. And I, I can't even think of no. words to. Like he's a I, husband mm. and a father. And like, if there's something super shady, like, and I just, don't regardless, know. shouldn't family have access to autopsy reports? You would think. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I can ask one of my corner friends how that, that works. So the FBI offered a hundred thousand dollar reward for information leading to the resolution of the investigation, which is again, super sketch if they're saying that it was a suicide. However, some feel that this was a, (laughs) right? What the fuck? Some feel that this was a slap in the face since in 2001, there was a shooting death of an assistant U.S. attorney, Thomas Wales, in Seattle, and the reward was a hundred was a million dollars. Not a hundred, sorry. One million dollars. Thomas was Caucasian. So could that play a factor in the reward money? But then immediately I go to Ray and he literally had no reward. Like he had a 12-month timestamp, which... I'm super skeptical that it had something to do with race. I think it just has like something to do with the case in general. A wooden cross with Jonathan's name, birthday, and date of death is carved in the cross arm and stands where the vehicle was found. A wreath with a red velvet bow is laid in front of the cross along with American flags, candles, and photos. Friends and family are still holding out hope for the real answers, the truth about what really happened to Jonathan Luna. Wow. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember to never reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any information. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Amanda. Find all our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance by Darren Makins. Please join us next week for another case to sleuth out.